trial and grave injustice leveled at our Lord Jesus. And tonight we will continue to think along the themes of innocence and justice by turning our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. So Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 14. Turn there with me if you would like to follow along. Our verse reads, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. There are three observations from this text that I would like us, uh, like us to use to frame our time together. The first of these is that there are things that take place that we do not understand. And as we look at this point, I'll be making use of the prior verses of the chapter to help us with this concept. And from there, we'll take a look at two final observations which come directly from our text, which are themselves instances of things that we tend not to understand. So firstly, there are things that happen which do not make sense to us. There are things that happen that do not make sense to us. As our text states, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. What do we make of this word vanity? All through the book of Ecclesiastes, this word is employed with regularity. The ESV footnote describes it as meaning vapor or breath. Like on a cold fall or winter morning, when you go outside from your warm home, you see your moist breath as you exhale. This phenomenon is probably less exciting to this Midwestern audience than for those of you who grew up in more moderate climates. The childhood experience of seeing your breath can be quite fascinating. Part of the attraction is how one sees, but for a moment, something so clearly, and then only for it to disappear almost instantly before one can expect, inspect every detail of it. This is the image we get with the word vanity. There is a fleetingness to it, a feeling of almost grasping it, but failing to do so. And with that effort, there is a tendency to another feeling of futility, the more you try to grab at it, the more frustrated you become at the effort of having tried and failed to do so. So what about our verse this evening makes it vanity? Why is the understanding of some things so elusive and with no apparent sense? Well, in the run-up to our verse, the author of Ecclesiastes has himself reflected on this and it would be fruitful for us to use the same line of thought he used. I will not be reading the chapter, but rather summarizing the sections for our benefit. When the chapter starts in verse 1, the author asks, Who is like the wise? He answers his own question by saying that the wise person is the person whose face shines. So as a grounding rule, we do not want to forsake common wisdom and its merits. Being wise does have real-world benefits. If you have gained understanding that fire burns you are wise not to stick your hand in the fire. A man or woman of understanding who lives by wisdom is a man or woman who is not full of consternation about their life. There is a pattern of calmness that they exhibit compared to the one who constantly frets. Moving on in verses 2 and five, through 5, the author pivots in the direction of our current observation at hand when he commends obedience to authority. A ruler has authority and does as he wishes. He is not beholden to any higher law of the land. Even if you do not have the ability to understand the motives of this ruler, it is prudent to obey his instruction versus disobeying instruction 
and inadvertently siding with the wicked cause. In this, we begin to see, in an earthly example, the glimmer of the disconnect that can exist between what we see and what is actually taking place. In the following verses, the, the author steps back, as it were, and makes some observations about the general limitations of mankind. Though there is a time and a way for everything, we as humans often fail to perceive them. One reason is because troubles and concerns cloud our judgment. We can be easily confused by the things that take place in our lives. When we are angry, sad, or distracted, we may fail to see all that is happening around us. Another reason is merely our lack of strength and control. The author notes how we cannot even control the day of our death, nor even the circumstances that might lead to it. We're not as autonomous as we think, as when someone is called up for military duty, he may know in his wisdom that to go into a certain battle would be sure death. It's tough luck. He is forced to do it. He's forced to do it by mere national obligation. He's unable to avoid it. Such is the manner of life as observed from the perspective as if the highest order of rule were mankind. And then in verses 10 through 13, that lead up to our evening's verse, the author takes a step back and considers the matter from a cosmic angle. He introduces this by reflecting that he saw the wicked buried. And we often think that the death of a man has the final say of that man, that in their final moments they receive their just rewards. But here too we find contradictions. There are cases of wicked people who seem to live uninterrupted lives and then to receive honor by those around them at their burial. They even seem to have enjoyed the benefits of the covenantal community whilst they lived. This in itself does not seem right. The very place you expect righteousness and justice to be speedily delivered can be the very place that is often neglected and it seems only to encourage further corruption and sin. It is at this point in our author's reflections that he brings his own grasping of the matter to an end. At the moment of risking an infinite regress, he delivers the key to exit this growing insanity, which is namely the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And we will make use of this ourselves in a bit. So to recap where we've been, getting understanding and living wisely is good. Don't forsake it. But it has its limits because man is limited. We're limited in our ability of understanding and strength. Not even the finality and manner of death provides the answers we hope for. And so because of all these aspects, there are things that we cannot understand. But take note of the phrase in our text this evening in verse 14. It ends with by saying, on earth, there is a threshold to which this vanity extends no further. The matter is not so elusive from God's perspective. And take comfort that it is only on earth that such things happen. We have hope that in God's sight, all is as it should be. Thus, the fear of the Lord is an appropriate key by which to assess our next two observations. So second observation, there are good people to whom bad things happen. This is a common question that we hear today. It is usually mentioned with what many people consider to be the death blow of a belief in God, the so-called problem of evil, which says, if God is good and powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Either he is too weak to stop it, or he doesn't care enough to do anything about it. And to illustrate their argument, they ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Our text says, 
that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Let us note the qualifier of righteous. In my introduction, I said good people. The first step to clarify the confusion of this observation is to ask, who are these good people? According to our text, they are the righteous people. We should not confuse niceness with righteousness. On a high standard of morality, there are not so many righteous people. On the standard of God's holiness, there are none who are righteous. No, not even one. But let us remember the key from our prior observation that the author of Ecclesiastes gave us, which is the fear of the Lord. The world is divided up into two people, those who fear the Lord and those who do not. Those who fear the Lord are those who see their sin for what it is and understand that it should be punished. These seek to turn away from their sins. They are the ones who run towards their judge and plead his mercy and trust in his promise of unmerited favor for forgiveness and protection from the penalty they deserve. It is these people, those who fear the almighty, loving God, to whom things happen as if they have done wicked deeds. But given who we are talking about, we can now say that what man might intend for evil, God can intend for good. So let's consider a handful of ways God does this. We should be reminded for those that those who have been reconciled to God have become children of God. And what good father does not discipline his own children? And if we can appreciate now the firm discipline and instruction of earthly fathers, which at the time might have been difficult to understand, how much more so would it be the case that we can submit to the discipline of our Heavenly Father, trusting that it prepares us for a better way in the world to come. So as the author of Hebrews exhorts us, let us be trained by it, so as to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We should also recall the opportunity that exists in adversity to bear witness to the gospel. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church from a prison cell, and he remarks that there are some on the outside who draw attention to his case with the intent to cause him affliction. Almost unbelievably, Paul rejoices in this as it gives him additional opportunity for fruitful labor in the gospel. Furthermore, his imprisonment and conduct in turn serve as an encouragement for the faithful to endure as boldly as he has. So we should see that the calamity that comes the way of the righteous should not paralyze you and cause you to isolate yourselves in self-pity. Instead, look to understand what unique occasions it offers to draw attention to the Lord and all that he has done. Lastly, let us be reminded that some of the consequences that the righteous receive may be the consequence of their own doing. Though we should not be marked by sin, we are still at war with our flesh. The Spirit of God within is ever wrestling against the lingering power of sin in the body. By God's grace, he allows the consequences of sin to serve as painful reminders that there is still much to be put to death in us. They are warning signs not to return and backslide into old habits, seeking comfort in, in old ignorant ways. God in his forbearance is showing the vain and empty deceits that the world has to offer. So be sure to forsake such things. Now to our third and last observation. There are wicked people to whom good things happen. Our text says it as, There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. One of the reasons this observation confuses us is because it doesn't comport with our sense of justice. We wonder, how is it 
that those who do evil seem to get away with their misdeeds and get ahead in life. We should pause for a moment with that assessment and ask whether we're seeing this clearly or whether our judgment has been clouded through our grief or worse, maybe our envy. Do the wicked always prosper as we think? I'm inclined to believe that they eventually get caught in their own snare, though we may not be around to witness it. In the preceding verse to ours, the author says as much. Speaking of the wicked, he says that those who do not fear the Lord do not prolong their days. Let this be a sober warning to those who would think that the world is a matter of the survival of the fittest and that any shortcut to get ahead is to be congratulated. Do not be misled by the thought that the missing declaration on your taxes or the double-ton politics of your workplace that secured your position or promotion won't eventually come back on your head. You will find that whatever short-term gain is to be had will not be worth it, whether in this life or in the next. Now, to the Christian who is grieved by miscarriage of justice, the counsel to you is to remember the God you fear, the very God who turned your affections to hate your sin and to love God's ways is the same God who can make the wicked's gain, the wicked's gain to taste bitter and foul. They are still made in the image of God, and as they rebel against his purpose for their being, we can be sure that whatever benefit they found through their sin is short-lived. We have probably read or seen many accounts of the fleeting pleasures that sin affords. Indeed, we can still recall our own disappointments in the lack of fulfillment that our prior passions brought us. For the wicked, those who have no fear of the Lord, their sinful gain is never enough. The deceitfulness of the promises of sin is a vanity all unto itself. It will never satisfy them. It sinks a man deeper into its misery as they are driven under an unrelenting compulsion for something more. Their love for the present life is a desperate clinging to whatever semblance of relief they can find as the gloom that surrounds them closes in. I do not say this so as to rejoice over our enemies that we might feel better. No, we remember this reality so as to have pity on our enemies and not to seek our own vengeance. Leave it to the Lord. He will repay. So as our time together draws to an end, let us close these observations with a final reflection. We have been meditating on three aspects of our text. The first was that there are things that take place on earth that make no sense to us. Next, we considered a couple examples of these by reflecting on the unjust treatment of the righteous and the unfair gain of the wicked. And as we inspected these examples from biblical perspective, we see reason for not despairing and confusion at them. God is at work in his world. And despite what the infidels will argue, God is good and God is loving. He is so loving that he, has done, he, that he does not leave his creation to squander in the mess they've made. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born amongst the filth of the world in order to redeem it. Jesus, the only righteous one to whom it truly happened according to the deeds of the wicked, and having taken those deeds and suffered their punishment in his body, in death, he was raised for our right standing with the Father and was elevated to the highest seat of honor and rule. So take courage, suffering and confused Christian. Jesus was not above experiencing this apparent paradox. Indeed, he submitted to it so as to leave you an example that you might follow in his steps. So remember your Lord as you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly because this is a gracious thing in his sight.
Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word, Lord. We are weak in our understanding. We are easy and easily tempted into despair. We pray, Lord, that you would renew us and encourage us by your word, that we would be more deeply trusting of your sovereignty and your power and your goodness and your love. See to it, Lord, that we do not despair in our confusion and, and pray, Lord, that you would keep us from sinful vengeance. Help us, to, Lord, to entrust all these things to you for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.